Good morning. Honor we could connect together um, in this way. If you have a Bible, grab it and meet me in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19 is where we're going to be. If you're a first-time guest, special welcome. Uh, Hopefully we could connect more, so grab the app so that we can connect together. Uh, The scripture's also going to be in the app if you don't have your Bible, and it'll be on the screen so that we could track through the text together. It matters. Bring the weight of God's design to bear in all of the relationships that we have, the relational spaces we find ourselves in for the purpose of pursuing greater health and wholeness within those relationships. That's been um, the aim, and that is going to continue in this middle, uh, like, deep dive in Matthew 19, where we're uh, dealing with some ideas, significant ideas, uh, considerations, and actions that the text give us. But man, let me just say, (laughs) that song we sung, You Know My Name, man, that's been on my heart for a while, uh, this last few weeks in particular, um, and has just prayed over us, worked through uh, the text, man, there's a God who knows our name. Like he knows the particulars of our hearts, the particulars of our stories. He knows us intimately and fully, and that knowledge doesn't cause him to recoil from us like it would from some of us. If we knew people like that, we would move away from them. Rather, that knowledge, the scriptures paint a God who knows all of that but moves towards us in love. That he knows us fully yet loves us deeply. That's the God who is. He knows our name and I just want that to just kind of like hover over all of us and to just sit on us, stir us, like sink deep into our souls, particularly with what we're talking about, that there is a God who knows us fully and loves us deeply. He knows our name. Now, beginning our time, I think it's appropriate to start off by talking about the architecture of our city and our current cultural moment now. When I say architecture, I mean the elements, the designs, the factors, the people that contribute to the environment of the place we all call home. They contribute to the atmosphere uh, that we breathe in, like without even blinking, that shapes us in profound ways. They contribute to the culture of our city, Miami. Miami is a uniquely beautiful and broken city. It is a city like with this profound sense of sensuality. And when I say sensuality, I mean everything involved in that uh, word. Sensuality as its core is really just things that are moving towards the gratification or the satisfying of our senses, that which we taste, that which we see, that which we hear, that which we smell, that which we touch. That's, that's the core of sensuality, and Miami is that, but there's more to sensuality, and we know it. It's this move towards the experience, expression, or gratification of sexual desire and pleasure, and Miami is that as well. There is a powerful presence of sensuality in our city and a powerful pull towards sexual gratification and the experience of sexual pleasure here in South Florida. And our moment in time plays right into these things. So I was driving 
man, last week to Broward. Uh, shout out to everybody who's from Broward that makes that pilgrimage down this way every uh, Sunday. But I was heading up to, yeah, amen. I was heading up to Broward last week at around exit 14. I usually start to preoccupy my mind and my attention uh, so I don't like, you know, gravitate towards this large billboard, Scarlet's Cabaret. But last week, like as I was driving, I just noticed it. And on this billboard, there was this like provocative image of a woman and she was eating this like major hamburger and I could kind of make out the, the words. It was some form of like lunch on us. And I was like, man, that's like great advertising for a terrible diet that will destroy your soul. But I thought to myself, I was like, that really does epitomize our city, not the industries that are present, but the idea that's pervasive that any form of pleasure, you could have it here at any time you please. And it plays right into our current cultural moment that says the more you, you are most you, when after the hard work of self-discovery, of deconstruction, of peeling back the layers, who you are on the inside, that you, you are most you, when you arrive at this person and you're now able to adjust your life and satisfy that person, whatever satisfying that person looks like, which is usually pleasure, however you want it, with whomever you want it, nobody has to know it's not their right anyway. It's a powerful narrative that's being pumped out that we're feeding ourselves. There's another narrative that's powerful that stands right alongside it. It's this narrative that says life without sexual satisfaction or gratification is not life at all. It's barely worth living. There's not real meaning attached to it. Therefore, pursue sexual freedom as you please. With whomever you please, just be responsible. As long as you're free, get busy. We know that. And Miami has set itself up as the premier city for those narratives being satisfied and cultivated. But you know what? And I love my city. I love my city. What I've seen, what I've observed, and I'm sure that we have observed as well, is that because those pervasive narratives are shaping our city and shaping us, that if you just survey people in Miami, there is this pervasive sense of exhaustion. People are tired because the pace of that pursuit wears us all out. So there's pervasive exhaustion, even though we want rest and relaxation, this seems to be sustained seasons of fatigue. We're tired. You know what else I've observed? Again, I'm pretty sure we've observed this as well. That in a city like ours that is so pleasure-centric, and pleasure's not a bad thing, but it's so pleasure-centric, what ends up happening is there's all sorts of people who are left to pick up the pieces of other people's pursuits of pleasure. Example, the haves exploiting the have-nots here. Would have-nots become casualties of people satisfying their impulses or they create a living off of people satisfying their impulses left to pick up the pieces of our pleasure-centric place. You know who else is left to pick up the pieces? 
our future selves and our future relationships. Because our present selves are caught in this pace and we're swept up in this wave because everybody's affected. Doesn't matter if you're elementary school, doesn't matter if you're middle school, doesn't matter if you're high school, doesn't matter if you're in college, it doesn't matter if you're midlife, it doesn't matter if you're aging like fine wine, it does not matter if you've reached the twilight of your life, all of us are affected by it in the present and sometimes we get to the future, we're like, what happened? I say all of that to introduce us to this thing, that the leadership here at the church, formal and informal, is sensitive to the way our cities shape us, the way they press against our sexual ethics, our sexual lives in some profound ways. And there's all sorts of stories scattered across our church and scattered across this room. And Jesus's words may poke us and press us because he's poking and pressing against these narratives that are shaping our city and shaping us. But as they poke and press us, if we let them, they amount to a tender and a transformative word. They are very tender and they encourage transformation if we receive them as such. And that's been the prayer, that we would receive Christ's words as tender and invitations to transformation. Matthew 19, these ideas loaded. As we work through the text, I think it's best that we frame our time and we frame the text by asking and answering four significant questions. That's gonna be the flow of our time, asking and answering four significant questions. Let me give you the questions and then we'll, we'll get to work. Question one, what does Jesus's inclusion of sexual immorality into this exchange involve? That's a question. What does Jesus's inclusion of this idea, this, this truth of sexual immorality, what does that involve? Question two, how does his inclusion of that create a cool breeze on a Miami summer day? Question three, what does Jesus's inclusion of this eunuch paradigm into this exchange involved. He is going to introduce this idea, this paradigm of a eunuch. Now, what does that involve? That's question three. And the question four is, how does it create a surprising but necessary type of freedom? All right, those are the questions. We're gonna ask them and answer them bit by bit. So let's read it straight through and then get to work. Matthew 19 reads like this, verse one, I love it. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond uh, the Jordan and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read? I like that. He said, have you actually read? You have these questions, did you search for answers? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, beautiful, binary, bursting with beauty, dignity, and design, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined, let not man separate. 
they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your sin, <laughs> not like that, but because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And then the disciples said to him, if such is the case with a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. I don't want to drink from that cup. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive this. It's a lot there. Let's get to work. So a quick recap uh, so that we could bring uh, those of us who weren't here last week into the space that Jesus is inviting all of us into. And just remind those of us who are here what that space is. This is a space Jesus is inviting people into that is marked by confrontation, it's marked by transformation, and it's marked by liberation. That is the environment that he is pulling people into, one, where they're actually being confronted, but two, they could be transformed and set free. Liberation. Now, as he's pulling people into this environment, his words are world-shattering from some and world rebuilding for others, depending on your vantage point. So if you are the person that is pleasure-centric in an unhealthy way, and it rules you, every aspect of your life, specifically sexual pleasure, and people end up becoming vehicles to satisfy your appetite, and marriage is just another tool on your tool belt to that end, this is world-shattering. Because he's like, marriage is not made for that. It's not really made for you in that way. But if you are on the other side of the equation, i.e., you are the victim of somebody else's exploits, in our society, in their society, typically the case for that is women, this is world encouraging to go up to somebody and say, yeah, marriage wasn't made that way, which means that you are more than made to gratify somebody's appetite. Your beauty and your dignity and your worth goes far beyond your body. This is world rebuilding and encouraging. And he's doing so by introducing this robust picture of God's design and intent for marriage. And this robust expanded picture of the kingdom of God. The greatness of it, both are at play. The greatness of the kingdom of God is the only conclusion we're left to walk away with when we start to wrap our minds around what people are willingly walking away from. At the end, there, this is so astonishing, There's, there are people who are walking away from some experience of sexual gratification. Jesus is saying, place your sexual lives in my hands, the entirety of them, put them in my hands, and they respond in faith, okay. I will. It's an astonishing conclusion. It's just not where we begin. We're getting there. It's not where we begin. Where we begin is that question. What does Jesus' 
inclusion of sexual immorality into this exchange involved? Verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, that phrase sexual immorality may be a phrase some of us are super familiar with. Like if you grew up in a community of faith, you know that phrase, and that's like the boogeyman, right? It's like, oh my God, we don't want that. King James translation, fornication. You got to say it with some oomph, with your chest. If you write it out, write that bad boy out in old English, fornication. And so there's this fear that wraps around us whenever we hear sexual morality. And for other people, they're like, yep, see, that's that phrase that reminds me that those Christians over there are repressive or old-fashioned. Trying to hinder sexual joy and freedom, not push people towards greater experiences of it. But all of us are conditioned in some way to when we hear that word, that phrase, to immediately think that God is anti-pleasure, anti-joy, anti-sex, anti-our sexual lives. And that is simply not true. Not when we have scriptures like Proverbs 5. Let me go ahead and read that one for us. Proverbs 5 reads like this. Let your fountain be blessed. And rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. That was your shouting moment, whoever that was. That does not sound like a God who is anti-pleasure or anti-sex or anti-our sexual lives. You search the scriptures, and what you see is God is not anti that at all. First and foremost, God announced this blessing on all of humanity when he made them. And as he made humanity, our sexual lives were baked into the cake. He said, yeah, that's a good thing. Very good. And when you start to search the scriptures, you get passages after passages that show us God actually celebrates it. He celebrates the gifts of sex and sexuality, our sexual lives, in their proper context. Notice the caveat. You'll be intoxicated in all of that, wife of your youth. It's the caveat and it's the container that God has built into this thing that is core to even the design of sex, not by happenstance, and not because he's trying to hinder anybody, but because he's trying to protect, guard, and push us towards its greatest fulfillment. When you survey the scriptures, you're left to this conclusion that God gives us the gifts of sex and our sexual lives for the furthering of life. Why do they exist so that life can be furthered? Now, if you look at those same passages, furthering of life, if you build it out, here's what the furthering of life equals. The furthering of life is procreation. It's pleasure. It is powerful connection. And it is this portrayal of the unique intimacy that God wants with all people. That's the furtherance of life. And if, if I may, can I just go into that a little bit? Is that fair game? Yes, cool. Doing it anyway. Now, if you look at that, 
we tend to emphasize the first two, procreation and pleasure. So we know, well, how do babies get here? Sex. All right, cool, awesome. But we don't have the capacity to control that at all. Okay? And some of us are fully aware of that. But this is just a means to God multiplying the human species. And we know pleasure. We know that life is furthered when there's pleasure involved, especially bodily pleasure. Have you ever had a great conversation, a great time with a bad meal, right? So you're just like, yo, like, man, this combo was amazing, but the raisins and the potato salad didn't quite do it for me. In fact, it put a cap on my ability to enjoy the entire thing. It didn't further life. Because we know that there's pleasure associated with bodily experiences. We have taste buds for a reason. And whenever you have sex, there's pleasure there because of all of the pleasure receptors all across our physical bodies. But that's not the only thing built into it, nor do I think it's actually the most important things. Personally, look at powerful connection. We want to go through life with camaraderie, to feel connected to people, to look at people and say, man, there's a level of safety, of security, of shared love and mutual affections. There's this deep soul connection that we can't quite put into words, but we feel it. Life is enhanced when you don't go through life alone. Powerful connection. And built into God's design for sex is this binding mechanism. And I'm sure some of us know that, but its power is underestimated. That's why good, bad, eh, exhilarating, or traumatizing, if you've ever had sex before, you know your first. Good, bad, eh, exhilarating, or traumatizing. You know the first because it's bound to you. They're bound to you. And if it's been traumatizing, you know that there is no amount of money or therapy that could cause you to forget. And if you're in recovery because you're a victim of somebody else's appetites gone wild, we know better than most, that there's more to sex than physicality. There's emotional, mental, psychological, spiritual aspects baked into the cake that orient around this powerful connection. This is why the disembodiment of sex is dangerous. Now, when I say disembodiment, I mean the removal of all of those other aspects, those biological, those psychological, those emotional and spiritual aspects, and reducing sex or our sexual lives to just appendages, to just physical activity. It's damaging. The effects are far-reaching. Some of us, we can't relate to people beyond their bodies. And some of us, because of our consistent use of this powerful connection tool, when we're in situations, we're finally with somebody that we're like, man, I want to give you my whole self. I want to show you that there's nobody else I want to be with in this way. It doesn't quite drive us into that level of oneness to say. Because the tool has been dulled from consistent 
use. We know this, but we underestimate it. That's God's design, powerful connection, the moving towards oneness, furthering of life. There's another aspect, though. That portrayal of that unique intimacy God wants with all people. Now, we mentioned this last week, but this is the uniqueness of the God who is. He exists eternally as Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And in his eternal existence as Trinity, there is meaningful intimacy and love shared but they're co-equal and absolutely distinct. So there's this mysterious union while maintaining meaningful distinction. And if you're a Christian, God says, I'm inviting you to that type of love. This is Jesus's words in John 17, like verse three, he says, this is what I want for people, that they would know me and enjoy me forever because that's eternal life. And then as he starts to pray for people, people who don't know him yet, who aren't even born yet, he says, God, keep them in my name. I am praying that they would be one, that they would be one. They would have the same oneness that you and me have. That mysterious union with meaningful distinction. You play that out vertically, God looks at you if you've believed in Jesus and he says, son, daughter, heir. But that doesn't mean that we become lowercase gods. Ain't none of us walking around here turning water into wine. If you are, let me package whatever is in your DNA. So, you know, we could, we're not doing that. And if you are in a horizontal examination of that, God brings different people from different stories, different ethnicities into the same family, and they don't lose any of that. Yet he says they're one body. It's this mysterious union with meaningful distinction that God says is built into the design of sex and is expressed fully in heterosexual activity. He says, that's there. And any time we see sexual immorality, first and foremost, our minds to go to the beauty and the goodness that God has poured into sex and our sexual lives. And we should see sexual immorality as a dismantling of the beauty and the goodness, a destroying of it, and an ultimate destroying of the soul who continues in it, which means all of God's commands away from it are acts of kindness. God calling people away from sexual immorality to protect them from the damage that it will do, self or otherwise. That's called grace. That's called kind. Now, there's more here. If we start to just like build out the layers of Jesus's inclusion of this word, we see that this phrase that is translated sexual morality is actually one word in the Greek called porneia. Porneia. Now, you hear porneia and immediately some of us are like, oh man, that sounds like our English word pornography or pornographic. And so it means like illicit images or illicit sexual activities that we catch on film. And we're not far off, but 
That's not the fullness of what this means. Now, I must say this. What I've discovered recently is that there's this sporadic but consistent debate around the usage of the term porneia and how it shows up in the scriptures. And so what is going on right now is this debate whereby people are saying that Christians, because of their cultural biases, are importing their meaning into that word. They are importing heteronormative meanings into that word. So it doesn't mean what Jesus meant. It means what we, and it's like, no, no, no. if I may, what I've seen is those debates and those arguments, first and foremost, I think all debates should move us towards Christ and move us towards knowledge. That's why we ask questions. But in this context, what I've seen is a lot of the conversation around this word is disingenuine at best and self-serving. Because if you look at any literature around Jesus's day regarding this word, the culture, like non-Christian writers, porneia became this catch-all for all sexual activity outside of the marriage union, all of it. So it included bestiality, it included pedophilia, it included tryst, it included adulterous relationships. If people didn't want to use the word moikeia, but they wanted to use like porneia instead, it included sex between the same gender. It included the whole gamut of activities. That's what it was culturally. Now, the community of faith at the time, they picked up on it. It was like, that is actually the best accurate description for what God is trying to communicate. And so they used it, and that's why it's scattered all throughout the New Testament. But it began culturally before it began biblically as this catch-all for every activity. And Jesus picks up on it, but it's actually more involved when Jesus picks up on it. Because underneath this whole entire exchange and this inclusion of porneia is Matthew chapter 5. So in Matthew chapter 5, we are situated in what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, a series of discourses where Jesus is unfolding his kingdom ethic, God's ideal, what is human flourishing, what does life look like. And in Matthew chapter 5, we get this interesting, interesting exchange. Let me read it for us. Matthew chapter 5 reads like this, verse 27. And you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you would lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Notice what he's doing there. He is moving beyond external activity. That's Jesus 101. Jesus is like, those externals, I am after inward living. What's going on the inside of your heart? He is moving beyond external activity, and he is putting our gaze towards inward appetites that drive our external activities. He's catching all of us. Look at somebody lustfully. He's identifying what some of us are very familiar with, movie moments. You know what movie moment is? Where we have a sexual fantasy in our head? 
based on a past experience, a desire that we're longing for? He says, yeah, catching that. The violating gaze. Many of us have given and received the violating gaze. You know what I'm talking about? When you look at somebody and you already begin to do stuff in your mind with them that they didn't give you permission to do at all. So now you're, you've moved beyond affirmation and you've entered into the realm of violating, like you're violating them. He's catching that. He is catching all activity, external or internal. And because all of us have internal stuff that may or may not come out if the circumstances don't allow for it, he's catching all people. Now you're like, man, I, I, I remember there was this cool breeze. <laughs> None of what you said sounds like cool breeze. None of it feels like that. In fact, it feels like fundamentalism. It feels like the stuff I would hear from particular talking heads, pundits, on certain television statements, right? So like, you need to make that make sense while I'm still making up my mind around the brook. Here's a cool breeze. Because Jesus is catching all activity and catching all people, he is identifying a simple truth. Everyone everywhere has sexual brokenness. And some of us are fully aware of our sexual exploits. We know that our mind is a war zone. Landmines everywhere. And you beat yourself up. And your greatest hope for the day is to get more distance from the last time you said it would be the last time. And people have looked at you because of your expression of brokenness, whatever category it falls into, and they have said to you, that you are more distant from God. You are in need of more help. But because Jesus is catching all activity and all people, he is putting everybody in the same sexually broken boat, making its way towards eternity. That's the cool breeze. You are no further away from God, regardless of what somebody else or even yourself says to you. That's the breeze. The breeze is that though God, Jesus, directs our attention to what is broken and deficient, he also gives us help. Go to heaven blind. Go to heaven one-handed. Make war against the very thing that is warring against you. That's the cool breeze. And because we know that he's not in the maiming business, but to make war means to move towards the one who fights on our behalf. The cool breeze is that God is actually moving towards you in whatever sexual situation you find yourself in, and he's trying to pull you towards life. He knows my name. The cool breeze is everyone everywhere has sexual brokenness. Everyone everywhere is in need of greater sexual wholeness. Everyone everywhere is called to thoughtfully, proactively, and regularly pursue it as God regularly pursues us in love. That's the cool breeze. It's grace. That God comes in and says, hey, I see all of this, but I love you. I want you. Let's walk together towards life, health, and healing. That's the breeze.
when we grab that because it moves us to God saying, hey, if you, if you want to experience that breeze, you just got to put your sexual lives in my hands. That's the last portion of this, the introduction of this eunuch idea and paradigm. We still tracking together? Can I still be your pastor? Verse 12, after saying, yeah, but not everyone can receive this, only those to whom it is given, he says, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, a eunuch is anybody whereby because of circumstance or choice is not able to express a particular aspect of their sexual life. And by virtue of that, they're experiencing some level of sustained sexual frustration, but it doesn't make them any less. It's just a situation that they have. And he identifies the various circumstances where a eunuch comes to be. He says some are made eunuchs by birth. I love the acknowledgement of our Savior that what he says is that in the fetal development, some things don't move as cleanly and clearly as some would like or hope or expect. Yet, though they don't work themselves out in clean, clear ways, that is not a removal of personhood. People where that's their situation or their circumstances aren't less human. There's still dignity and beauty and life and meaning wrapped up into them. And it's, it's amazing that Christ would even acknowledge that. Then he says that there's some who have been made eunuchs by men, which is a horrible situation. We're talking genitalia mutilation that some of us are familiar with that happens here, happens in our nation, it happens across the world. But he's locking into a particular situation or circumstance for people in that day where the king's court was filled with eunuchs. People, men specifically, who were castrated. They weren't able to act out certain aspects of their sexuality. And the king would castrate them because if you're a king and you want to be mighty, you want to maintain your influence and your power, what you would do is you'd make sure that you had like a large army, you would make sure that you had a lot of wealth, and then you would make sure that you had a lot of women, a harem, because you had trash sexual ethics. And to protect your influence, you would castrate people. So there were people who were forced into this, this bodily alteration forever. But there was other people because of the trash sexual ethics within the society that said, you know what, this is a pathway to life and meaning. Namely, I could work in the king's court. I'll do this to myself. So they did it to themselves. But now what? And Jesus is acknowledging all of them. He's like, yeah, there's beauty here, though. There's meaning here, though. There's life here, though. And then he gets to the end. Eunuchs by choice who will willingly put a ceiling on how they're going to express their sexual lives. And the thing that is causing them to put the cap on it is the greatness of 
the kingdom. My friends, that's astonishing. That's astonishing back then. It's more astonishing right now because you and I are familiar with our preoccupation with romantic love. We are preoccupied with it, and it's poisoning us. Ernest Becker, Jewish cultural anthropologist, wrote this book, The Denial of Death, and he talks about this romantic solution. It's powerful. For time's sake, I'm only going to read the latter portion of the quote, but he gets at what's going on in our souls. He says this, the self-glorification that he needed, mankind needed in his innermost nature, he now looked for in the love partner. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which we look to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused in one individual. In one word, the love object is God. Man reached for a doubt when the worldview of his great religious community overseen by God died. After all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption, nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults, of our feelings of nothingness. We want to be justified to know that our creation has not been in vain. Needless to say, human partners can't do this. But our preoccupation with romantic love that if you find the right person, everything will be all right, this is what it does. It poisons us on the inside where we destroy other people. And Jesus is saying, by virtue, because he's including himself in this eunuch paradigm. He's saying, I took on this restriction for your sake. This life of sustained singleness and celibacy, he took it on. And what he said, by virtue of taking it on, you need to realize I am lifting the dignity of it so that we all see a single life is a sacred life. And it's significant, regardless of what anybody will ever say, that if you live a life of sustained singleness, there is tremendous significance there, and it is absolutely sacred, bursting with meaning. He forces us to wrestle with the truth that sexual expression is not the epitome of our humanity. Praise God. Praise God. Because we'd all be in trouble. And we'd all still be tired. Place your sexual lives in the hands of God. When we do, oh, here's what he says. Here's what he says. Isaiah 56, I love it. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. I will be less than in the kingdom of God because I don't have Israeli ethnicity. He says, no, don't say that. Don't say that. He says, and let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Let the person who has, for whatever circumstance and situation, the inability to express the fullness of their sexual life, let them not see, say something is wrong with them. 
Were they a deficient? For the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my, way, my walls a monument and a name. Better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I will root their love in me in this deep, profound way that shows them what I am giving them is better than life now. That's why Matthew 19 closes in this way. He says this, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. I love that. Do you know what he just did there? He recognizes the cost. Notice how those are all relational categories. Brothers, sister, father, mother, houses, land. The forsaken of certain relational experiences for the sake of the kingdom. And here's what he says, though. You will receive a hundredfold. That's not talking about the then and there. That's talking about the here and now. That I will root you in a way that satisfies you deeply relationally, that is hard to quantify, hundredfold, but impossible to deny. You'll feel it, and it's meaningful. Oh, by the way, it's only a sliver of what's coming later, eternal life. And I'm going to keep you there. I'm going to make sure you get there, sexual brokenness and all. Tender, transformative, terrifying, but freeing. That we don't have to put the pressure of fulfilling the deepest parts of a heart on our shoulders. That we don't have to allow narratives that push and press on every single one of us to dominate and rule. That we don't have to be ruled by the desires of our heart, sexual or otherwise. And if we go without, we're not missing out on the fullness or the meaning that God is placing in front of all of us and says, hey, do you want this? Because I want it for you. So wherever you are on your sexual journey, however the reality of sin is showing up in sexual brokenness. There's a tender word for you and for me to place our sexual lives in the hands of a tender, safe king. Pray with me. Um, that only comes from faith. No words, no songs could sing us into that, could move us into that. Only faith, which is a gift of your spirit. So God, I pray that you would push, poke, prod, propel all of us 
into greater sexual wholeness by looking at the standard that you've given us, this glorious gift for the furtherance of life and all that entails, that we wouldn't dismantle that because we know better. Rather, we would humbly dive into your hands and say, God, here's all of me, my sexual life included. Now show me you're not a liar. Please. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.